Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Anand Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm a writer with an interest in the internet. We talk to guests to help us understand the relationship we have with our bodies when it comes to sex and intimacy. It's a whole new kind of sex education for your owl... Careful. ...pleasure. (laughs) Today we are delighted to welcome Alex Cowan to The Pleasure Podcast. Alex is a leading disability activist, performer and writer challenging the sexual erasure of differently abled people around the world. She also has multiple sclerosis. She's a real pioneer. In 2014, she starred in Alternative Miss World, their first contestant in a wheelchair, and was the first disabled person to attend the world-renowned European Society of Sexual Medicine Summer School. Alex developed multiple sclerosis in her late teens and documents her journey as the effects of illness change and challenge her body. She shares her adventures in performing burlesque, going skydiving, and how she'd really like to keep talking about sex. So I wrote um, a poem and it's called I'm Not an Easy Fuck, which is about really, really wanting to have sex, but can't have it for me with my disability in the way that I used to have it, you know, easily where you just meet someone, you fancy them, then whatever, maybe one day later, one hour later, whatever, you're ripping each other's clothes off. That's just not possible with me. So it's not easy. I know why I can't stay. I want to. I so want to. I want him to want me, to have me. But I can't. It's not Pollyanna. It's logistics. It's reality. My body is unwieldy. I am bionic. But I still haven't got time for the whole disability awareness education lesson. I still haven't got time to ease him into the unwieldiness of me, the differentness of me, to deal with his look, his difficulty, until he's used to it, to me, or maybe never will be. I can't bear that. No matter how much I want him, this sex, and I do. And I then was asked to be part of a group of disabled women to do a burlesque show at um, a festival called Dada Fest, which is a big European festival in Liverpool of um, disability and deaf arts and culture. And so when we were all in a group discussing, you know, what we were going to do for our burlesque little act each, and then I read my poem, but I was thinking, I can't do this. It's kind of, it's a bit black. And everybody's talking about humorous, funny, satirical things. And then I just thought, I really want to do this. So I did do it. The most important thing for me was disabled people who came up and said, I'm so glad you said that because 
especially at the moment, people are so much wanting to talk about sex and disability and about the fact that disabled people, some of them really do want sex, have sex, enjoy sex, but also what nobody is talking about. It's actually not easy for some people. And when that's kind of not acknowledged, it makes it very difficult, both in reality, in the access facilities that you provide, but also in your attitudes towards disabled people. I was asked to go and give a keynote speech on sex and disability at a conference for health professionals. And so we arrived at the hotel. It was a two-day conference. The hotel had been refurbished, they told me. It was lovely. So... You know, I'd said I was coming with my husband. We wanted a double bed. And so we were shown into the room and there were two single beds. So we said to them, can we push the beds together? You know, zip them together. That's quite a common thing. They said, oh, no, sorry, you can't do that. So my husband started to try and unbolt the headboard. No, you you couldn't do that either. So we said, oh, um, is there another disabled room? And they said, oh, yeah, there is one more. But that has the same beds. And I said, well... Are there no rooms where you can zip the beds together? And they said, oh, yeah, all our other rooms, you can do that. And it was like the only two rooms, and this was a large-ish hotel, at least at the time there were 300 people staying at the hotel, the only two rooms where the beds could not be put together were the disabled rooms. Not only were they single beds, they were bolted to the wall. And it was a newly refurbished hotel. And that is kind of encapsulate the sort of attitudes and difficulties that as physically disabled people that we face. Well, you're doing such a great job at um, shining a light on how sexy and desirous and desiring uh, disabled people can be and are, especially in your incredible photograph that you did, this reimagining of the Christine Keeler photo. Oh, yes. So it's a reimagining of the, the famous, iconic, I think it's 60s, on that chair where she's, where she's nude. She's and sort of straddling an Arno Jacobson yes, chair, she isn't she? And you do what she's doing, but in your wheelchair. And in the nude. Yes, in the nude. And that was a really big deal. The photographer who took the photograph, Alistair Morrison, he had photographed Christine Keeler for her 40th birthday. And when I first met with him, because he had to first meet with me to see whether he thought that I was someone that he wanted to photograph. And and this is a famous photographer. Like He has done pictures of Bette Davis, of Kate Winslet, Laurence Olivier. I mean, wow. Tom Cruise, you know, all sorts of people. And me. And well, it sounds so, like you had to have an audience with him, so he'll agree to photograph you. Yeah, I, I did have to go and have like an interview with him. And he gave me some homework to do. He said to me, I want you to go home now and I want you to look at yourself naked in the mirror. So I went home, I did that, and I hadn't looked at my body in the mirror naked for about five years And I'll get emotional because when I saw myself, I cried because I made my husband go out of the bedroom. I said, I want, you know, I want to do this on my own because I had to do this homework because I had, he wanted me, Alistair Morrison, because, you know, he wanted to be sure and he was absolutely right that I could really cope with 
being naked and having somebody photograph photograph me and having people look at me. So, but I said to my husband, you know, I want you to go out of the room. And so he set the mirror up and I looked at myself and I cried because my mental image of how my body looked was not what was being reflected in the mirror at all. I was much thinner, my body shape had changed. And it wasn't that I ever had a perfect body. Who does have and who would want to have anyway? But it was just that my image of my body was so different and it had changed because of my disability. And I thought, am I really going to be able to do this? Can I? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't look how I wanted it to look. And then I thought, Alex, this is your fantastic body that works so hard for you. And it's my wonderful body. It's not perfect. It has lumps and bumps and things in places that maybe I would rather not. But it's my body. And that is going to have to be good enough. I didn't get there in that instant. I didn't get there. But I thought, this is good enough for me to go forward with this photograph. I'm wondering about um, whether it was a conscious decision over those five years not to look at your naked body or whether it was a subconscious thing, you think, of not wanting to, to look anymore. I think it was a mixture of those things and it was also logistics. You know, getting undressed for me is not that easy. I have to have somebody to undress me. And also, I never really, I'd taken my body in a way for granted. I was really happy with how it was. I've always had small tits. I was fine with that. Always had a rounded tummy and a kind of curvy figure. I loved it. That was, for me, that was absolutely great. And obviously, I had been having sex with my husband and everything like that. So, of course, I'd sort of seen my body but actually, I'd not really seen it. And it was only when I got really depressed about what was happening to me physically, how my body shape was changing, was I as a woman still attractive anymore, that I then had to kind of look at it in a different way than I'd done before. Yeah. I was wondering, actually, if you could tell us a little bit about when you were diagnosed with MS, how old you were, and what the first sort of uh, bodily changes you experienced were. I had, my symptoms were very minor, but I've always been a person that's very conscious of my body. So I could tell that there was something not quite right. Um, when I bent my head forward, I got like an electric shock through my body. When I walked on a flat surface it felt like I was walking on cobbles my fingers when I touched paper felt kind of furry then what happened was I went to the optician just to get some glasses and she looked at me and she said I think you need to go and see your doctor she had seen that my optic nerve had changed color mm -hmm. so and that's an, an indicator of MS so I went first for tests uh to hospital and they told me I didn't have MS but actually I did have MS but in those days they could do that they could kind of keep it from you because they didn't know very much about MS and I suppose they kind of thought well she might not ever have an attack again 
difficult. So when you say attacks, so these experiences of like the furriness underneath your fingertips and the cobbly um, surface underneath yeah. your feet would come and go. It wasn't all the time. Uh, well, it would like come for like three months and then go away. I see. And also tiredness. In fact, I was living with somebody at the time and I could completely disguise that because I, I didn't say anything to him. How old were you at this time? Uh, at that time, I was 24. I'd had my first symptoms, though. Sorry, when I'd had the hospital tests, I was 19. Mm. And so they didn't tell me. And and people have asked, well, were you angry that you didn't get formally diagnosed until 25? And I said, well, actually, no, because I had eight years of not having to worry about whether I had MS or not. So you met your husband. Was it important for you to be with somebody who understood the changes that you were going through, who knew what would be happening together? And did you know what would be happening together with those changes? Or was it a whole new landscape? Well, that is the thing. He did know I had MS before we started having a relationship. Yeah. But you can never fully prepare yourself. You know, we're still learning things. We're still going through things. For me, I have a progressing condition. So there are new losses, new difficulties you have to deal with every few years or few months, you know, and that is really hard. So although in his style, because what he did was when I first told him I had MS, he went to the library and read loads of things and probably scared himself off to death. But the reality of living with it is very different. So living with MS is a work in progress. There are some personal things that's got to a stage where I felt that it's really important to speak about and to show in public. And that's one of the reasons I took the decision to do the Good Housekeeping nude photo shoot, because I wanted to show my catheter. Because just talking to particularly women, and I know when I... When the idea was first mooted to me about having a suprapubic catheter, which is indwelling in you, that my first thought was no way, I'm not going to have it because I'll be like this awful version of a bionic woman with some tube coming out of me and, you know, my husband won't want to have sex with me. And I really put it off for quite a while. I was um, risking getting kidney infections and I thought, no, no, you can't do this yourself Alex this is ridiculous so um I did have the operation done I don't even really think about having the catheter now I still have sex and my husband still finds me attractive I feel I'm attractive and I wanted to show other women that there is no stigma because for some people and in some communities it is such a stigma having a catheter and the catheter has liberated my life. It has been absolutely fantastic for me. I was wondering how, I mean, you are absolutely gorgeous and, the, and those photos are stunning. <laughs> Thank you. But I was wondering, suddenly go, going on this unexpected journey where bo bodily changes are happening, what happened to your sense of attractiveness? Because where you are now feels like, and I'm sure as you say, it's always a work in progress and things are changing all the time. But you know, to be able to have those photos done and to have a real sense of self and self-worth and attractiveness is such a prized, wonderful thing to have. And I'm just wondering whether it was tricky getting there or whether you've always been able to hold on to it, what that journey has been like for you. 
I've not always been able to hold on to it at all. Yeah. And especially with the images in the media of, you know, perfect bodies, very ableist persona that women should be. It was very hard for me. As my body shape began to change, I went to a really dark place because I felt like I don't fit any, I don't tick any of these boxes that I'm meant to be ticking. And when you're treated by health professionals, like I had one GP who said to me, well, um, of course, you you don't need that because you're not having sex anymore. You kind of shrink away. Of and it's really hard. And when I went to a gynecologist and asked him something to do with oral sex, and he kind of shut the conversation down, which made me feel like a naughty girl. And that also that I said something disgusting and overstepped the mark, some sort of boundary. And I didn't say anything because as confident as I can sometimes be in some situations, in others, I am not. So it's really important not to assume that a seemingly confident person is confident in all areas. But I had to go through a journey. I had to face myself and my body and the reality of my life as it was. I remember one night sitting in my sitting room in the dark and I sat there and I thought, I've got to get out of this. What can I do to break out of this? And I had remembered um, something I'd read in a book by Alice Walker. She'd written her memoirs, I think, called The River Runs Through It. She said the immune system likes a shock and something that breaks your comfort zone, gets you out of your comfort zone. And it has to be to jolt your immune system into has to be something scary, something you've never done before. So I thought, what can I do? And I thought, I wanted to give back to the organizations that have helped me a lot. So I decided to do a parachute jump. Amazing. Amazing. As you do. Terrifying. (laughs) Can you describe it? I can't imagine. Oh, God. They took me up in this small aeroplane with no door and then you're strapped to an instructor and he was wearing shorts shorts and a t-shirt and a crash helmet (laughs) and I was wearing this little leather cap and I thought he's wearing a crash helmet I'm wearing leather cap hold on a minute (laughs) (laughs) and as you sit on the edge of the plane looking 10,000 feet at the ground below you and I thought Oh, fuck. I think I'm going to be sick, actually. It'll make you feel really uncomfortable. <laughs> but it was like, I'd, you know, I'd committed to do it. I'd raise money for charity. There's only one way I, out. There's only, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, wee! And it was weird. It was like being underwater, very high speed. You can hear the wind rushing, and it's really, really loud. And I was so concentrating on controlling my breathing and not panicking that I forgot to open my arms because when the instructor taps you on the shoulder you're meant to open your arms and so I I didn't open my arms and then when the parachute opens you're yanked up and suddenly it all goes silent and you feel like you're a little feather just wafting literally and you have no idea of the speed you're going 
or anything like that. And it's all quite, and it's incredible. Birds are flying past you. It is absolutely incredible. You can see all the ground, everything, the fields, and then the cows appearing and, you know. And then as you get near to landing, it is like you've got a jet engine shoved up your bum because suddenly you're aware of the speed and you come in really fast. And because I can't hold my legs up, they had to organize it so that two men, I mean, it was, I rather enjoyed the experience, <laughs> but two men had to run in and hold my feet up yes. as we sped to the ground wow. and slid along the ground because, of course, the instructor couldn't stand up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was fantastic. And it was so exhilarating. Yes. And there I was, safe and sound with my family had come to watch, my nephews and nieces, some friends had come to watch. It was absolutely fantastic. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I would like to rename foreplay into something like wow play or <laughs> disco play because disco is um, discovery and discussion which I think are two really important elements. I don't like the word because it's like it belittles what foreplay is. It's like making out that it is the second-class warm-up act. For it's the an hors d'oeuvre, isn't it, thing. rather than a main course? Yeah, to the real thing, which is penetration. I mean, porn sort of tends to send you a narrative that penetration is absolutely everything that's important. But actually, there's lots of LGBT relationships are not based around penetration at all. Absolutely. There's this assumption there's lots of penises in, in arseholes, but that's actually not the case at all. You know, there's lots of um, sex that's happening that is about um, oral sex, about you know, um, using your hands, about, you know, yes, you can use toys, but it's not necessarily about penetration at all. Mm. I mean, have you had to renegotiate um, obviously, you have have lived with MS for a long period of time now. How has your view of um, your body and the sort of sexual relationship you're negotiating with your husband changed over that time? Well, I mean, it's it's changed a lot. And it needs a lot more communication, discussion, and sometimes also involves having to accept that actually we can't do X, Y, Z anymore because it's just not possible for me. Big things have had to change, you know, spontaneity, something that might have been three minutes, 
now is more like three days. Also, you have to negotiate age now as well, because we've been married 25 years. I think that some of the things which we've had to face and deal with are generic to a lot of relationships and not purely disabled relationships either. You know, changes in desire, changes in capabilities, changes in what you like and what you want. We went through a phase of using a sex swing because it was quite nice because it took the weight. So my husband didn't have to hold up my body necessarily. Something else did that. And then using cushions in certain ways and then different types of sex toys and sex toys that have got stronger vibration. Just to mention, because in MS, the sensory fibres are damaged. So sensation isn't sometimes as easily felt. Yes. So the higher vibrations. I mean, so hence you were feeling when you were touching things, it felt a bit like hairy or the yes. floor felt like co- um, cobblestones because your sensation was changing. Yeah. And, you know, sex is very much about you doing what feels right to both of you, you know, being consensual, being respectful and enjoyment, you know, when I was not disabled, um, I didn't think about disabled people at all. I mean, you know, uh, my attitudes were awful in lots of ways. But that's kind of the way this society is. It's getting better with, I mean, with more portrayal on mainstream television. But even then, it's a, it's a tiny drop in the ocean. I was um, reading something about how the world is structurally set up in a quite a capitalist way. And for in a capitalist structure, you want to be economically viable and you want to be doing something that has um, a, potentially a sort of monetary or a useful outcome with every moment that you're spending. Now, part of that means that if there is anything that might challenge that, it's not considered worthy or valuable. Uh, and if something takes longer to do, or would cost more to make it more convenient. Well, that doesn't actually serve the sort of capitalist structure that's set up. Uh, and someone was writing about if you started with just setting up a town or a city just so that you're you're thinking about the accessibility for um, disabled people and children, mm. and that's how you set it up. Well, all the able people would be fine anyway. Exactly. And what is ironic is that most of the disability features, if you like, non-disabled people love using because they're so easy to use. And I mean, uh, one figure that I can remember is that 82% of people are disadvantaged by the built environment. So that's older people, uh, parents with prams or people with mobility problems. So, you know, it's not only disabled people. There are Lots of groups of people who are disabled by the built environment in which we live. I want to ask about how people treat you and how people have treated you before your physicality changed Mm. and afterwards. I had a conversation with a group of close friends. It was about six years ago. And as I was talking to them, I realized that they didn't think I was having sex anymore after I became disabled. And... I was like, where did you get that idea from? You'd known me before as a very sexual person. Why suddenly when I become disabled, would you think I'd turned into a completely different creature? And this was friends of mine. 
they're not like that now. But but there are there are some friends who have said, I find it too hard to see you now because when I look at you and you're struggling and things, and I'm like, fuck you. I mean, I don't say that to them because <laughs> I, I know that, you know, they have their own struggles to deal with. But it's like, what do you think it's like for me? And it's like, I don't want you to spend hours and hours talking to me about my illness. I want you to talk to me about lovely, nice, fun things. Um, I have a lot of friends who don't really treat me differently or who do talk to me uh, when and don't make assumptions. But I definitely find people look at me differently. You're ignored. I have people who talk to my husband and don't talk to me when it's about what would I like to pick at the the counter at a cafe or something, they ask him, you know, it's the does she take sugar scenario. I don't know whether you've heard that phrase. Yes. So, yeah, you're definitely treated differently. I wanted to ask a particular question about the use of sex workers, particularly about people in palliative care situations and um, people who, uh, often young people who'd been um, sort of disabled throughout their lives and would use sex workers as they got older. I don't know if you had any views on sex workers and disabled people. I really think there is a place for sex workers and sexual surrogates with disabled people because disabled people have desires like anybody else and they can't always readily be fulfilled with a relationship or a partner. And for disabled people, it has an extra dimension of being difficult because of lack of access to places where you meet other people, because of not being seen as a desirable person to have a relationship with, be it short, casual or long. And I think also it is very important because disabled people can have low body self-esteem. And I think there needs a point where you need experience to build confidence sometimes. And that's why some sex workers always consensual, always, of course, not anybody who's been trafficked or coerced or anything into that sort of work. I know some sex workers who love their job and they are totally independent, autonomous. They control how their working life is. And I think it's important. It's valuable. They actually can play a really positive role. I absolutely agree. I think and because it's not guaranteed that you will fall in love no matter who you are, you will not. it's not guaranteed that you will have human touch in your life. If, however, it's something that is important to you and you're able to afford a sex work and you think that that's something that you would like to, to deal with, I mean, I, I absolutely think that should not be an illegal thing or well, that yeah. should not be policed in any way. Um, I mean, obviously, keeping both parties safe, obviously, that that's important. Um, but you know, just the yearning for human touch seems such a, a, a standard thing that actually finding solutions to it, for example, yes. a sex worker, is uh, it, it just seems a very sensible way of dealing with it. And not stigmatising the person who is looking for it as being a person that has something wrong with them, something dysfunctional. What can able people, or what is it that we need to learn about the way we behave and think about and treat disabled people? Ask, don't assume. And then when disabled people say how they would like to be treated or what they need, listen to it, take it seriously and act on it. 
So many people say, oh yeah, of course we want disabled people to come here. Of course we think disabled people should be able to do that. And then they don't do anything about making it possible. It shouldn't be the disabled person's total responsibility to make something more accessible. So ask, don't assume, and use language that's kind of positive and that emphasizes the what people can do rather than what they can't do. And also enjoy, enjoy talking to disabled people because we are just like anybody else and we and I personally love being talked to. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Pleasure Podcast. If you enjoy this, do share, review and subscribe on iTunes. It really does help other people find us and helps to give the series a boost. Please do give us five stars. Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. Gilad Vysotsky for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex, and of course, pleasure. pleasure. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.